Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from Ephesians 6, where the full armor of God Our fight is not against people on earth. We are fighting against the rulers and authorities and the powers of the world's darkness. We are fighting against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly places. That is why you need to get full, and when the day of evil, you will be able to stand strong. And when you have finished the whole fight, you will still be standing. So stand strong with the belt of truth tied around your waist and on your chest where the protected of right living. My guest today is Elaine Voci. She's a life coach. She's also an author of eight non-fictional books. We're going to be talking about two of them today, The Five Most Harmful Myths About Grief, as well as Resilience Art, which is a grief coloring book using ritual and music to help you grow. She's also a certified life cycle celebrant trained in funerals, and since 2014, so for five years now, she has been hosting and facilitating a quarterly death cafe in her community. For those of you who don't know what death cafes are, they are small groups of people who basically sit together, they eat some food, they have coffee, water, tea, what have you, and they engage in that casual conversation of the subject of death and dying. They're wonderful, free activities. They uh, speak about your own experiences and your fears and your wishes. And Elaine, I really would love to know what drew you most to the world of Death Cafe. You know, um, probably like many people, I think um, when we look back, we find that there are all kinds of experiences that have planted these seeds that eventually open up a path toward a particular thing. With the death cafes, I knew nothing about them, but I discovered them when I was going through training in the celebrant service school. And we actually had a death cafe, kind of an online connection with a whole group of people that were in my class. And there was something about even the term death cafe that really resonated with me. You know, I kind of got goosebumps when I first heard it. And then when I experienced it and I learned what the process was, I knew I wanted to bring that to my own community here in Carmel, Indiana. So um, that was the introduction, and then the experience of it just totally persuaded me that this was something I knew was important for people, that would be helpful for people, and that I would enjoy um facilitating it with, you know, uh, all the time that is spent when you're inviting people and getting things together. Now, after uh, five years, it's, you know, it's very um, familiar to me. So it's an easy process. And I replicate it, you know, four times a year and always enjoy it. So this is a movement. It started in Europe and really it had that Mm -hmm. express purpose, opening up a meaningful conversation and exchange that really Mm -hmm. helps talk about death and makes it something that 
you know, really is a basic part of our life. It gives that sort of mm-hmm. richness to the process of yeah. it. And people don't always realize that this is something that has been around for quite a while. There are about 5,000 different cities who do this across the world in 32 different countries. There is a website, deathcafe.com, or is it .org? Dot com. com. And anybody can go on there and they can learn the rules about how to make this a safe and nurturing and accessible and confidential group. And you can make these anywhere Mm -hmm. you want. The one in Carmel, Indiana, where do you host this? Is this your home or is this sort of a coffee shop? Um, Actually, we started out uh, when um, my private practice was located in a building that had a very nice um, executive boardroom. And that's where we began. But then eventually that building was sold and I had to move and we moved the Death Cafe around until we found a home two years ago. And we are at the um, Heartland uh, Church uh, that's over off of Michigan uh, Road here. And it's a universalist, Unitarian Universalist church, a very welcoming community. And so we meet there in this kind of large um, open foyer space. And it's delightful. It's just proven to be a quiet, um, it feels, you know, like sacred space because it is a church and there's a lot of that energy there. Uh, So it's turned out to just be a really nice fit for us. And do you find this really helps with the philosophy you have that death and life are two sides of the same coin? Mm -hmm, Very much so. And I love the openness of the conversation because, um, you know, I always do a little intro. Uh, It's interesting, uh, Elizabeth, that there's a core group of people that have been consistently coming to the Death Cafe (laughs) over all this time, and then there are always new people who hear about it, and they come. Um, But the conversation has this um, quality of uh, respectfulness to it, and so Someone may come in and they really want to talk about an experience they're going through or have gone through. The conversation is wide-ranging. Sometimes we've had talks and experience uh, described to us of people in the group, myself included, who have had near-death experiences. And what has that been like and how did that change our lives? Uh, So uh, one time we spent a good deal of time talking about suicide. So every time we meet, it's kind of a different focus because the conversation is always driven by the people who come. I spoke to a woman recently. I did a presentation in a library about a week ago, and a woman came up to me, and she was explaining her story of passing Mm -hmm. away during surgery and then coming back. And the way she described it was, you just can't understand the beautiful colors the beautiful music, the not feeling any pain, just what this gorgeous vision of that's like and how people that Mm -hmm. have died prior to you are welcoming you and they're bringing you Mm -hmm. in. And then when you all of a sudden kind of snap back into your body, there's a real, I guess, a remorse, a real upset of, no, I want to go there. No, (laughs) that that next world is is definitely... Um, you know, the heaven aspect is just a just a much lovelier, wonderful version of what we have here on Earth. And I, <laughs> have you heard stories like that too? Yes, uh, although the stories vary widely as well. I think um, 
the death experience or near-death experience is different for different people. And uh, always, I think there's some things in common. There's a kind of an acceptance and a non-judgmental love that is associated with the experience. The person who has come close to death feels this um, very quiet, deep love that's being shown to them and a deep caring and a deep respect uh, that has no judgment associated with it. In my own case, I can tell you that I uh, was in a bad car accident and one minute I was in the car and the next minute I, I was in a different place. I didn't know where I was. I just knew I had left that car. And I had a companion come who uh, spoke through telepathic communication, and I was guided to follow that individual to a building that had very tall pillars, was all made out of marble. When I got in there, it turned out to be this kind of enormous library with shelves as high as I could see, and the books looked the similar size, and they were lined up from floor to ceiling, and the next minute I know, my book of life was open to me. And so there were some decisions that I made about the life that I would return to, and that decision whether to stay or go back was completely mine to make, and there was no judgment around it, no pressure, no feeling of right or wrong, just whatever was meant uh, in my heart for me to honor and respect. And so I came back. And I think everyone's experiences are different, but there is that love that's consistent. And the other is that almost universally to a person who's had it that I've heard or read, uh, they're no longer afraid of death. And what a gift that is. Yeah, huge gift, huge gift. That's uh, something that we, I think, universally are sort of freaked Mm -hmm. out about. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you came back because your personal mission has really revolved around the roles of teacher and writer and coach and all these really great, positive, inspiring, human lifting things. And I know you worked as a therapist in alcohol and drug abuse counseling. And then Mm -hmm. when you learned about more holistic health, that we can't really separate physical, emotional, spiritual dimensions of an illness, you went on and you have this great background. Did that really help you conceptualize your book, The Five Most Harmful Myths About Grief? Because you really, again, don't have that scared place that you're operating out of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, this five most harmful myths came directly from my experience working with the bereaved. Uh, About six years ago, I was trained as a hospice volunteer, and the way that they decided to take advantage of my background was to put me in a place with a bi-monthly group of uh, spouses who have lost their mates. And a social worker and I co-facilitated those groups uh, twice a month over a period of four years together. And I heard so many of the stories, Elizabeth, of how people were shamed about how they were grieving, how they were um, treated so much more abruptly once a month or two months had gone by since the death of their loved one, and they weren't over it yet. 
And so I started to recognize, oh, my goodness, these are some prevailing attitudes that are in our culture around grief that are strictly coming out of two things, ignorance, you know, a a lack of knowing uh, about grief and understanding it, and the other is uh, this fear of death. And so people wanting to hurry other people along, wanting to avoid them for fear that somehow it might be contagious and they would hasten the death of themselves or someone they love, a kind of superstition around it. So pretty soon it started to add up, and there were these common themes that the bereaved were exposed to in our culture that are harmful. They aren't kind to people. They aren't um, understanding. They aren't based on tolerance. They aren't informed commentary. They're myths. They're things that people have heard that they believe are true because it sort of fits with their value system about hurry up and get over it. Don't get morbid. Um, and you know, don't um, don't drag it out. You know, you should you should recover. Almost like death and grief, the loss of someone you love, ought to be treated the way or with expectations like we would have the flu. You know, you you want to get over the flu. You want to get feeling better. Well, grief doesn't follow along those lines. Grief is not the flu, and it takes a long time for some people. And many people never fully are the same person. They're changed by the loss, but they are able to accommodate and integrate it and, you know, move towards a good, healthy life. But they're forever changed by that loss. As you write, grief is always overwhelming and relentless. Your loss is not a punishment or an effort to test your worthiness. That is directly out of your book, and that speaks volumes about how we look at these things, how we think people are looking at us while we go through this, and ties directly into what you're saying. We're not bad. We just don't quite know what to do, huh? Yes, yes. I I think people are misguided. Um, I see them, I give them a break to interpret that their responses, although they can come across as harsh, are really because people are misinformed. Can I read your poem, Imagine, out of your book? Yes, please. Okay, wonderful. So in front of me, I have the five most harmful myths about grief, talking with Elaine Vochi, and she has this wonderful poem called Imagine, which I think is haunting and so very accurate. Imagine that your life is a huge stained glass window, a beautiful image. Imagine that your loss is like a stone being thrown through that window, shattering it, like the loss of your spouse shattered your life. Afterwards, the natural thing to try to do is pick up the pieces and try to put it back together the way it was. You'll never be able to do it because now there are pieces missing, the pieces represented by your loved one. As long as you try to put it back together the way it was, you will feel empty and frustrated. However, if you sit back and look it over and re-examine it, even though you can't put it back together like it was, you can still make something beautiful out of it. Just because it's different doesn't mean that you have lost it forever. Take the pieces of your life and recreate them into something that makes you happy 
and makes you proud. Like any art, it is a work in progress. Some of the pieces are still too sharp to pick up, so there are holes in the fabric of life. Some days it is still too hard to show up for life, but they are fewer than when your loved one first died. Author unknown. That's a good one, Elaine. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It expresses so well the journey of grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also yeah. found, and, too... And it also speaks to hope. You know, I think mm-hmm. hope is such a key to our resilience. Yeah, I was just going to say, too, that you'd mentioned that grief really brings a gift along with it, that grief can really empower us because it allows us to see mm-hmm. the world really in a different light, and it pushes mm-hmm. us to say yes to life and to maybe change a career or relocate or just find joy in something, maybe mm-hmm. new love or just seeing grief as um, this big eruptor in our lives, but really, mm-hmm. it really moves us in the new direction where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Something of beauty that comes from it. So it grief in, from it. in your life, things that have happened when your husband passed away, what can you wrap your head around to say that was actually something that positive that came out of that? Well, I think um, in that particular situation, I, I think there's um, strength that comes from the sheer endurance of the grief and the partnering with grief to self-expression through art. I've always liked to sketch and draw. I love photography. I love writing. Um, I love poetry, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the grieving process moved me closer to those things, helped me grow in those ways. And uh, I think, like many people, when we lose someone, uh, no matter the circumstances, uh, that vacuum, that space that's in our lives that's created, we, we naturally kind of organically begin to fill that space. And allow, not force, but allow life to speak to us about what goes in that space. And our part is to show up and be present and be mindful and be willing and open to consider what might come into that space and how that might both support us, but also give us an avenue of expression so that we don't end up with all of our feelings bottled, but in fact opened up, made bigger, expressed. I also teach a course called Conscious Aging, and one of the principles of that is very similar, and that is that if we take advantage of aging, the opportunity that aging brings to expand ourselves, to be curious, to be open, to express what we've learned about life to the younger generation, to be mindful of what kind of a legacy we want to leave uh, when we leave this earth. And part of it is um, facilitated by the willingness to explore and to see what opens the space. Because if we have 
have a choice, and I believe we do throughout life. Uh, old age is no exception. <laughs> Aging is no exception. We have a choice. We can allow ourselves to expand and grow bigger, or we can become bitter. And it's up to us. It's what we choose to focus on. It's what attitude we bring to it and what plans and willingness to um, give of ourselves that we make possible. And you also have some online grief courses that you're about to launch on teachable.com. You want to tell us about those? Yes. In fact, um, this week was the launch. Tuesday. um, Congratulations. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I've been working on this concept for at least a year, and then I actually started writing the courses in the falls around September. And I have a wonderful editor, um, a woman that has connected with you on Twitter named Karen Carpenter. She's both an editor and a whiz kid in terms of technology, so she helped and partnered with me. Um, But my course is launched on Tuesday, and there's two. One is a mini-course, and it's meant to be kind of a um, sample so that people can get a sense of what some of the content is and some of my style uh, to see how comfortable, you know, they feel with it. And um, the first, uh, the mini course is called The Surprising Side of Life After Loss. And then the six-week course is a self-paced flagship course called How to Integrate Your Grief, Build Emotional Resilience, and Heal Your Life. So I think, um, again, with the work that I've done, I... I felt that there were some people who are more reflective and more introspective, and those are people who don't gravitate naturally to sitting down with a coach and, or a counselor and wanting to talk about their grief. But perhaps they would find working online in the privacy of their home to be a more suitable, more appealing means by which they can help themselves through their grief. And that's why I, I created them. I, I recognize that some people have that pattern or that style, and perhaps there's a need. We'll find out. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to find out. We'll see what the response is, you know, from people about the coursework. That's really thoughtful of you to make sort of a sampler course, like you say, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us think, well, gosh, I don't want it to go to a counselor because then I have to start yeah. at the beginning of my life and I have to really get them abreast to what's going on and go through all the pain and take the Band-Aids right. back off and things that I feel like I've yeah. healed, forgiven, moved on from. And so I like how your mm-hmm. sampler is there so people can really decide whether they want to talk about this, if it's working for them, and if not, mm-hmm. at least they put their toe into the waiting pool and took the chance mm-hmm. to do it because yeah. not all of us know what a life coaches or what that's like. So good on you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. I appreciate supportive comments. And we will discover, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And how your, your teachings will also grow too, because you'll find out people will probably reflect back to you what they Mm -hmm. really want to be talking about, learning about, Mm -hmm. discussing. So it's interesting to see how you'll ebb and flow sort of what your syllabus looks like too. Yeah, yeah. For sure, I built in mechanisms and opportunities uh, for them to give me their feedback. So uh, it could even develop into a conversation online. You know, we'll, we'll just see how, what direction it takes. But 
it's invaluable for me to hear from people and what their experience of it is. Yeah. Your second book I want to talk about is called Resilience Art. I have a copy of it here, and it's just sumptuously gorgeous. It's a grief coloring book using ritual and music to help you grow. It's illustrated by Madeline Miller, and I love how it was about beauty and sorrow and grief and its relationship to resilience and how the concept of this book came to you in your mind's eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of my books have come that way. It's a very similar process, so it's like a birthing process, I think, you know. Um, I had just finished a concert that I hosted in the community called Music for the Soul, Celebrating Life and Facing Death. I sponsored it, and I hosted it, and for two hours we had this marvelous folk singer, Bill Cohen, who did such a wonderful job with such a wide variety of songs. Uh, It was amazing. So when that was over, you know, you've got that adrenaline rush, and now, whew, time to breathe, you know, and kind of relax, and that was in the spring, and so I was looking forward to summer. And as uh, it sometimes happens, Spirit had other ideas, uh, because the concert was held on Sunday. The vision came two days later when I woke up. Clearly, a Spirit wanted me to create this book that it was ready to be born, and it was another book that I was the midwife chosen to go through the labor and delivery. And uh, whenever divine inspiration happens, I don't know how it is for you, but for me there's this feeling of quickening, like excitement and energy that I can feel in my body, and I recognize that that is the form that my intuition uses to speak to me. And... I've gotten quite accustomed to that voice in my life, and I seek it out at times, too, when I'm puzzling over something or I'm trying to weigh a decision. Um, I don't know if you or your listeners go through something very similar, but I feel that internal intuition is like one of my best mentors because it not only provides guidance for me and a feeling of kind of protection, but it wants only the best for me. And it also wants the best for the larger world to which I belong. And so I feel like that's serving the greater good. And that is certainly one of the legacies that I want to leave when when I'm no longer on this earth. So I trust my intuition. And um, this book began with me beginning to envision it and what I wanted to put in it. And again, I always love poetry. And there's a local poet here that I met a few years ago, and I love her work. So her name is Liza Hyatt, and she has a number of books. She's also won a number of awards. And the um, the book that I drew from for this coloring book is called The Mother Poems. And it's a lot about uh, death, dying, um, also relationships and forgiveness and inspiration. And the poetry is just, I think, powerful. So um, that's a part of resilience art because I want to share in that book how art, many different forms of art, uh, can really help relieve and assist the grieving process. So the book has 24 original drawings um, that were done by Madeline Miller, as you mentioned, and uh, they are 
um, able to be torn out as a book. They are, what is that word I'm looking for? But there's little um, ways to tear them out so you don't rip them. And then you can put it down on a flat surface rather than color in the book. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM The Truth. Thank you to my guest, Elaine Vochi. She has so much to offer the world between her courses, her death cafes, her books, her life cycle celebrants, everything she has going on here. You can find her at elainevochi.com, www.elainevochi.com. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.